Our subject matter for this session is the Haftarah of the first day of Rosh Hashanah. Take it from the first chapter of the book of Shmuel and the beginning of the second chapter. The story of Chada and the birth of Shmuel. And I wanted to deal with two issues related to the Haftarah. Firstly, to try to understand what the story is really about. And secondly, to relate all this to the question as to why this particular story was chosen to be read on the day of Rosh Hashanah. The birth of Samuel, which is the subject of chapter 1, begins with a story about his parents, his father Elkanah and his mother Chada. The book begins by telling us that there was a certain man of Rabatayim Sofim. His name was Elkanah, Shlo Elkanah, Ben Yerocham, Ben Elihu, Ben Tohu, Ben Suf Efrati. We are given his lineage. And then we are told, Elkanah had two wives, Sheim Achad Chada, Sheim Hashedit Pedida. We are told that this man had two wives, one Chada and the other Penina, that Penina had children, but Chada did not. The text does not tell us how it came to be that Elkanah had two wives. Typically in the Bible, for example, in Breshit, in the book of Genesis, in situations where a man has more than one wife, namely Avraham, the story of Sarah and Hagar, or Yaakov, who was married to both Rachel and Leah, there is trouble, there is conflict, there is strife. Elkanah has two wives, but the book of Shmuel tells us not how this comes to be. Our story continues, tells us that this man would go periodically, from time to time, to bow down and sacrifice to the Lord of Hosts, Hashem Tzvakot, in Shiloh, which is the central place of worship. And there, says the text, the two sons of Eli presided, priests unto the Lord. Let us pause for a moment and analyze this third verse of the first book of Shmuel. What kind of man is Elkanah? He would go up periodically, we are told, to bow down and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And then the text tells us a very strange thing, that in Shiloh, the sons of Eli, Chafni and Pinchas, ministered unto God. Strange, because in the first chapter of Shmuel, Chafni and Pinchas do not appear as characters. They only appear in the second chapter of Shmuel. In the first chapter of Shmuel, the priest who will figure in our story is not Chafni or not Chafni or Pinchas, but rather their father Eli. Eli is the high priest who interacts in chapter 1 with Chada. So we may ask the question at this point, why does the text here, in the third verse, introduce us to Chafni and Pinchas?
Chafi Yepinchas, the sons of Eli, are the priests described in chapter 2 as being wicked priests, B'nai B'liyahu, who knew not God, who are violating and defiling the sacrificial order, who are cheating and robbing the people who are blaspheming God's name. And its account of Chafni Upinchas, says the prophet in chapter 2, that Shiloh will be destroyed and Eli's failure to rebuke his children. Eli per se is a good and saintly man, but he fails to rebuke his children for the sinful action. Verse 3 of the first chapter were introduced to Chafni Upinchas. I would suggest that the purpose of introducing Chafdiyu Pinchas in verse 3 is to give us an insight into Elkanah and by contrast an insight into his wife, the heroine, Chada. Elkanah is a good and pious man as described in the beginning of Shmuel. He's a man who cares about God. He's a man who goes periodically to sacrifice, to bow down. He's a man who wants to do the right thing by God and by his wife as well. He's a man who cares deeply about Chada. We are told in verse 5 that when he would come and bring his sacrifices, he would give Chada an extra portion, for he loved Chada. And later on, when Chada is bitter and angry, Elkanah tries to console her. In verse 8, he says to his wife, Chada lama tifki, why are you upset, he says. Am I not better for you than ten children? So he's a man who cares about God. He's a man who cares about his wife. But if we see what he does, he would go up periodically to Shiloh to sacrifice to God. What do we know about Shiloh? If we look at the previous verses, we get an insight into Shiloh. Now, of course, there are no previous verses in the book of Shmuel because this is chapter 1. But there is a previous book, the book of Judges, Shoftim. And the last story of the book of Judges tells us about Shiloh. The context is this. The last three chapters of the book of Judges describe an incident called Pilegish Bagivah, the concubine of Giva. A man's wife, referred to also as his concubine, as his Pilegesh, is kidnapped, is raped, and is killed by the townspeople of Giva. And the text of the book of Shoftim describes this very much in the same terms that the Torah in the 19th chapter of Genesis describes the story of Sodom and the attempt to take Lot's daughters to violate Lot's daughters. This precipitates, in the book of Judges, a civil war between the tribe of Binyamin, the tribe of Benjamin, and all the other tribes. And the tribe of Benjamin is virtually eliminated, destroyed. In the last chapter of the book of Judges, and that's the chapter that precedes, at least in the order that we have the uh, stories, it precedes the book of Shmuel, it precedes the story of Chada. we are told that the tribes of Israel regret that Benjamin now may be destroyed as a tribe. And they think of ways 
to bring Benjamin back into the fold, to repopulate Benjamin. But the difficulty is that not only has Benjamin been decimated by war, but all the tribes have sworn that no one, no man, will permit his daughter to marry Benjaminites. And there are very few Benjaminite women still left. And unless somebody is found around this, Benjamin will die out. So there are two ideas, two strategies employed in the last chapter of the book of Judges. Firstly, they discover that one group of people did not take an oath to withhold their daughters from the tribe of Benjamin. This is the town of Yavesh Gilad, which did not participate in the oath. So, the tribes of Israel are able to take the daughters of Yavesh Gilad and give them to the tribe of Benjamin. But there are not enough women in Yavesh Gilad to supply Benjamin and to rebuild the tribe of Benjamin. The elders of Israel meet and come up with a suggestion. The advice is found in the 21st chapter, beginning in verse 16. Vayomru zikrei ha'idah, ma'naseh la'notarim g'nashim, ki nishmedami b'yamin ishah. Vayomru yirushat pleitaru v'yamin, v'lo yimachesh shevet b'yisrael. So the elders of Israel said, what shall we do for wives, for them that remain? Seeing that the women are destroyed out of Binyamin. And they said there must be an inheritance for them that are escaped of Binyamin. That a tribe not be destroyed out of, out of Israel. However, We are not able to give them daughters. Our daughters as wives. But there's no way out, because they took an oath. Israel had sworn, saying, Cursed be the one that gives a wife to Binyamin. And they said, Behold, there is a festival unto the Lord in Shiloh. A periodic festival. They describe where Shiloh is. And in verse 20, they issue a command to the people of Benjamin. So what they say to Benjamin is this. Behold, there's a festival in Shiloh. When the women go out to dance, hide in the vineyards, come out of the vineyards, grab each man and woman, take her home with you, to the land of Benjamin. And they continue to say, if someday someone says to us, you violated your oath, you swore that no man shall give his daughter to Benjamin. We can say, we didn't give our daughters to Benjamin, Benjamin took our daughters. This is the loophole that the elders of Israel in the last chapter of the book of Judges find to resupply Benjamin with women in order to rebuild the tribe. The irony, of course, is that the entire story of civil war, which is the concluding story of the book of Judges, the purported cause of civil war is the moral outrage felt by all the tribes of Israel that a woman had been kidnapped and raped by the tribe of Benjamin. Their solution to the problem 
in order to resupply Benjamin, is that many, many women should be kidnapped and brought back home to the land of Benjamin. And this takes place, we are told, in Shiloh, in the central place of worship, at the festival that transpires miyamim yamima from time to time. That's the end of the book of Judges. The book of Shmuel continues the story. We are told about Elkanah, the well-intentioned, pious man, who wants to serve God. He wants to bow down and sacrifice to God. Where does he choose to serve God? He chooses to go to Shiloh. Shiloh was a den of iniquity. Shiloh was about to be destroyed in the book of Shmuel. And he goes there, we are told, so, Elkada is represented as the well-intentioned, pious man, but also represented as the man who goes, he, he goes periodically, as if by rote. He follows the calendar. And this description of Elkada in the beginning of Shmuel is important for our story, essentially because the book of Shmuel is setting up a contrast between the well-intentioned Elkanah, saintly Elkanah, pious Elkanah, but misguided, conventional and rote, and Elkanah's wife, Chada, who refuses to participate in the service of Shiloh, who will serve God in chapter 1, not through sacrifice and not through bowing down, but through a wordless prayer. That's what the first chapter of Shmuel is setting up. But Elkanah is not only well-intentioned vis-a-vis God. Elkanah is well-intentioned vis-a-vis his wife. We are told in the first chapter of Shmuel, in the Haftarah of Rosh Hashanah, that Elkanah would favor Chada. This is found in the fourth and fifth verses of the first chapter. Vayhiyayom Elkanah would give portions, sacrificial portions, to Penina, his wife, to all his sons and daughters. But to Chada, he would give an extra portion. For he loves Chada. But God had closed her womb. And the next verse tells us, Her rival, Penina, provoked her to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. And the text, it seems to me, is suggesting a causal relationship. That Penina causing Chada to suffer is a function of the previous verse which tells us that Elkada favors one wife over the other. It's reminiscent really of the story of Jacob. In the 37th chapter of Genesis, Jacob has many children, but one favorite child, and the favorite child favored child reports back on all his brothers to Jacob. We are told at the beginning of the 37th chapter of Genesis. He would bring back 
evil report of his brothers. Something the Torah obviously frowns upon. And the next verse tells us, not that Jacob reprimands Joseph, but the Yisrael Havet Yosef Mikol Badav Ki Benzikudim that Jacob loved Joseph more than the others. He was a child of Jacob's old age, and he made for Joseph a long-sleeved coat. Some translate a multicolored coat. A visible symbol of the favoritism that Jacob shows to one child, and the one child who is reporting upon all the other children. And the next verse tells us, that when the brothers saw that Jacob had given Joseph the coat, literally when they saw that Jacob favored Joseph, they hated him. They could not speak peaceably to him. So Jacob's favoritism of Joseph leads to anger, to hatred of Joseph. And over here we have the same story. The favoritism, the partiality that Al-Qadr shows Chada leads not to the betterment of Chada's life, but leads to making Chada more miserable, more upset. And the seventh verse continues, it tells us, He would do this every year, year by year, when he would go up to the house of the Lord, and she would make her angry. She would cry and not eat. So Al-Qadr doesn't only do this once. He doesn't only favor Chada one time. He favors Chada every year. Shana b'shana. A kind of literary parallel to miyamim yamima, periodically. He's a man who goes to Shiloh periodically, miyamim yamima, to the dead of iniquity, where he thinks he's going to serve God. And who's in Shiloh? Now we understand why the verse tells us here that the place that Al-Qadr goes to is the place where Chafri and Pinchas minister unto the Lord. Again, well-intentioned. He loves Chada. He wants to help Chada. He tries to console Chada. But instead of consoling her, he makes her lot so much more difficult. He would do this year by year. He would follow his custom, his pattern, every year. Shada b'shada. Chada is crying. Chada refuses to eat. And Al-Qadr says to her in verse 8, Why do you cry? Am I not better than ten children, than ten sons? Chada, of course, does not reply. Why she does not reply, we will see shortly. But she does not reply. Obviously, the answer is no. Al-Qadr is not better than ten children. But this particular year, Chada does eat. Matakam Chada, Achare Ochra Bishilo, Viachare Chateau. Vieri Hakohei Yosheva Hakisei, Albizuzate Harashem. Here we're told that Chada, after eating and drinking, is in Shagal, accompanying her husband, and the high priest Ailey was sitting on the chair, on the throne, by the doorposts of the Temple of God. V'hi barat nafesh. Chada was very bitter. V'atitparel ar Hashem uvachotivkeh. Chada prayed unto God and she cried. V'atidor nedav atomar. She took a vow. 
Hashem Tzvakot, Imraot Yireh Boadi Abotecha, Uzechartadi, Vlotishkach et Abotecha, Vratato Rabotcha Zer Adashim, Uditativ Rashem Koyimei Chayav, Umororo Yarel Rosho. Chada prays unto the Lord, and she takes an oath, a vow, and she says, if you will remember your handmaiden, and give to your handmaiden children, I will dedicate the child unto God for his entire life, and no razor shall come upon his head. That's a Nazarite vow. The Torah tells us in the book of Numbers that the Nazarite can take a vow to dedicate himself or herself to God. Chada is taking a kind of Nazarite vow concerning not herself, but her son. Total dedication to God. That's what she promises to do if God will remember her and see her plight. The text continues by telling us, She was praying at great length before God, and Eli was watching her mouth. Chada was talking from her heart. Only her lips moved, but no voice was heard, and Eli thought she was drunk. Eli said to her, Eli rebuked her, said to her, How long will you be drunk? Remove your wine from yourself. He's telling her to leave the sacred place. She's defiling the sacred place by her presence. A drunken woman in the temple. Chada responds in verse 15, No, she says, she says, no, I'm, I'm not drunk, she says. I'm just a bitter woman. I have poured out my heart, my soul before God. Do not consider me a wicked woman, she says. But rather, out of my complaint and my grief, have I been speaking. So Chada is a woman, in chapter 1, who interacts with two men. The first, her husband, Elkanah, the well-intentioned, pious Elkanah. But all of his actions bespeak his lack of understanding, his misperception about God, and his misperception about his wife. And the high priest of Israel, the saintly Eli, also misunderstands her. He sees the superficial. He watches her mouth. He fails to understand what Chada is really about. Now at this point, it's instructive to look at the story of Chada and what Chada has done here within the biblical context. And by that I mean in comparison to other such stories. The story of Chada fits into a general typology of the barren woman. A typology that we come across, for example, 
in the book of Genesis. In fact, in Genesis, Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel are all women who have difficulty having children. The only exception to the rule that of the, the heroine having great difficulty bearing children is Leah. Leah, at the end of the 29th chapter of Genesis, has four children right after marriage. And it's interesting that in chapter 29 of Genesis, at the end of the chapter, the Torah gives us the reason why Leah has children. The Torah says that God saw that Leah was unbeloved. So the Torah explains for us how it comes to be that Leah has children right away. Four sons, immediately. Almost as if that's the exception to the rule. The matriarchs in Genesis, with one exception, which the text explains, have great difficulty conceiving. The exception to the rule is Leah. And that the Torah feels constrained to explain. Now, Sarah, Rachel, Rebecca have difficulty conceiving children. And it's interesting to look at the strategies that they use in order to have children. Sarah, we know, in the 16th chapter of Genesis, goes to Abraham and asks Abraham to marry another woman, Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. And through Hagar, says Sarah, I will be built up. That's the story of Hagar of Yishmael. That is what the Torah reading of the first day of Rosh Hashanah. Chapter 21 of Genesis, which is a continuation of chapter 16. The banishment of Yishmael and the birth of Isaac. And God remembering Sarah. But her strategy was to go to her husband and to offer the husband another wife. And Abraham takes up the offer. When it comes to Rebecca, Rebecca has a child after her husband intercedes for her. Unlike Abraham, who never intercedes to pray for Sarah, Abraham prayed only for himself. But Isaac, in chapter 25 of Genesis, prayed for Rebecca. Isaac prayed for Rebecca. When it comes to Rachel in chapter 30, Rachel goes to Jacob and says to Jacob in the beginning of chapter 30, Hover me, buddy, and give me children. Else I will die. Jacob gets angry and says, Am I God? Am I God? I can't simply manipulate God. At which point Rachel says, Okay. She says, Then take my handmaiden Bilah, much as Sarah did. And Jacob marries Bilah and has a child. It's interesting that in all of the cases, in one of the cases, Isaac prays. In the case of Rachel, Rachel asks Jacob to intercede for her. Hovily bodied. It's not clear how. Through prayer, Rachel assumes Jacob has the power to change God's mind, perhaps. Both Sarah and Rachel offer to give their husband another woman. 
But we have no instance in the book of Genesis, in the story of the matriarchs, of a woman praying for herself. Typically, the woman goes to the husband, or the husband intercedes without having been requested, as in the case of Isaac. So the story of Chada is a deviation from the pattern. The story of Chada is about a woman who does not go to her husband for help. Her husband, after all, sees no problem. Her husband is trying to console her. Am I not better than, than ten children, he says? So Chada is on her own. And that's the prayer of Chada. The prayer of Chada is born from a situation of complete aloneness. And not only has her husband no understanding of what drives Chada, but the high priest of Israel, Eli, misunderstands her as well. When he sees her, and he sees her prayer, he misunderstands it. He considers her a drunkard. And what she's doing is remarkable, because she is not only praying to God in a wordless prayer, but she goes to Shiloh, the place of sacrifice and bowing down. That's what Elkanah does. He bows down and sacrifices. And in the very place of sacrifice, Chada refuses to bring the sacrifice. Chada serves God not through sacrifice, not through bowing down, not through formal acts, but through a silent prayer. Chada represents the deepest kind of prayer, the prayer of one who is completely and totally alone. This is one of the reasons that this chapter has been chosen for the Haftarah of Rosh Hashanah. Because what Rosh Hashanah is, among other things, is a day of prayer. The primary symbol of Rosh Hashanah is the shofar. And what is the shofar? If not the deepest prayer, the prayer without words. The closest we come to the shofar in terms of human prayer is the prayer of Chada. Chada spoke from her heart. Only her lips were moving, but no sound was heard. This is one of the reasons that the prayer of Chada is an appropriate story for Rosh Hashanah. The prayer of Chada, as we have mentioned, is born out of a sense of loneliness. She is truly alone in chapter 1. She's the person that nobody understands. Her husband is an active participant in Shiloh. The Yamim Yamima. Participates in the sacrificial order. Chada bypasses the sacrificial order. More than bypasses. She goes to Shiloh and doesn't sacrifice. She goes to Shiloh and prays. And it's something so unusual, so remarkable. The high priest himself has never seen this. He assumes that Chada must be drunk. Remove your drunkenness, he says, from the sacred place. No, I'm not drunk. I'm just a bitter and angry woman. What is she so bitter about? We might ask ourselves, not only what is she so bitter about, what is Chada want? What is the prayer of Chada? What is she requesting? Of course, she wants a child. But what is interesting is that if we look at the conclusion of the Haftarah, which is taken from chapter 2, the ten verses of chapter 2, those verses are Chada's prayer. And Chada prayed. This prayer is not a prayer of request, a bakasha, 
That's the prayer of chapter 1. But the prayer of chapter 2 is a prayer of thanksgiving. Chada has her child. Chada has named the child Shmuel. Chada dedicates the child to the service of God. In fact, he goes to Shiloh. And I'll discuss that in a few moments. But after the child is born, we have a prayer of Chada. If we look at Chada's prayer, there is something very unusual about this particular prayer. The prayer essentially has one main idea. Chada says, Chada says that she is exalted and enlarged over her enemies. She rejoices in God's salvation. And then she begins to talk about God. There is none like our God. None as holy as God. Do not talk proudly. Let arrogance come not out of your mouth. The Lord is a Lord, God of knowledge. And by God actions are weighed. The bowels of the mighty men are broken. Those that stumble are girded with strength. Those that were full have hired themselves out for bread. Those that were hungry have ceased. The barren has borne seven. She that has many children has become wretched. The Lord kills and gives life, brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He raises up. It describes the God who raises up the lowly. This is the central theme. And the God who brings down the mighty, the haughty, the arrogant, the proud. Verse 8 sums it up. God raises the poor out of the dust, lifts up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes. This verse, chapter 2, verse 8, has a parallel in the 113th Psalm, a psalm typically recited as part of the festival celebration, part of the Hallel. But the difference between that Psalm 113 and the prayer of Chana is this. Psalm 113 speaks only of the God who lifts up the poor and the oppressed. When you come to the prayer of Chana, by contrast, she focuses not only on God who lifts up the poor, but focuses perhaps even more upon the God who destroys the wicked. The next verse is typical. The Lord will guard His pious ones, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for not by strength does man prevail. Chada is focusing primarily on God's destruction of the wicked, of the haughty, of the proud. The last verse of the song, 
Hashem yechatum rivavalav b'shemayim yareid. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. Hashem yadid afseyaretz. God will judge to the ends of the earth. V'yitain oz l'malko v'yareid karen b'shicho. He shall give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. What is the prayer of Chada about? What is the gratitude for? These ten verses do not strike us as a prayer recited by a woman who has just given birth. There's virtually no mention at all of birth. It's not a prayer about birth. It's not a joy for having a child. Which suggests to us that what Chada is praying for is not really a child. Of course she wants a child. But why does she want a child? Not to make her feel good. In fact, the child will be given away, she says. She wants a child to change the world. That's precisely the point of this chapter. She wants this child to do something she cannot do. She's a woman. Women in the book of Samuel are powerless. But she's going to have a child, and more than have a child, she's going to train the child to change the world. And here for the first time, in the book of Samuel, we have a prayer about kingship. The last verse of the Song of Chada and the last verse of the Haftarah talks about the God who will judge the world, give strength to God's king, and exalt the horn of his anointed one. Chada is praying for kingship. And she wants her son either to be the king or to anoint the king. Her son is Samuel, who in the book of Samuel, which is the book of kingship, will anoint both kings. He will first anoint Saul, and ultimately, he's the one to anoint David. So Chana has two prayers. One is a personal prayer. She wants a child. Unhappy she has no children. But more importantly, for the book of Samuel, more importantly for Chana, she wants this child to change the world. You see, this accounts for something else in the story of Chada. After the child is born, her husband says to her, this is found in the Haftarah at the end of the first chapter, verse 21, After Chada has her child, and she names the child Samuel, Elkada and his household went up to bring the sacrifice of days and to fulfill his vow. As always, preoccupied with the vow, as always, preoccupied with the sacrifice of days. The Chada Roalata. Chada did not go. Ki Abraham Isha, Adigomer Hadar Vaviotiv, Vidirat Pene Hashem, Vyashav Shabbat Olam. I'm not going, she says. I want to fully nurse the child. And once I bring him up, he will stay there forever. So Elkada in verse 23 says to her, Do as you wish, he says. Remain until you fully nurse him. Only may the Lord establish his word. He's concerned about the possible violation. So Elkada looks at the calendar and says, It's time to go up there. Elkada says, No, I can't bring him to Shiloh until I have fully nursed him. 
Now, why is that? Why must she fully nurse him before she gives him away? It seems to me that the nursing here carries with it the same meaning that it does in the second chapter of the book of Exodus. Moses' mother gets Moses back after Moses is placed in the little raft in the, in the Nile. He's brought back to his mother who nurses him. Only then is Moses returned to Pharaoh's daughter. The nursing suggests not merely a physical nurturing, but instilling the values, bringing up the child. Only after the child has been brought up by his mother can Samuel now be given over to Shiloh, entrusted to the care of Eli, the saintly high priest. And it's interesting that in the second chapter of Samuel, though not in the Haftarah, but in the second chapter of Samuel, we are told the following, that after Samuel is residing in Shiloh, under the tutelage of Eli, of Eli, we are told the following, in the second chapter, the 19th verse, we are told that, Umi'il katod taselo imo, v'yarotolo b'yamim yamima, v'arotai et isha, l'zvoach et zevach hayamim. We are told that his mother would go up to Shiloh periodically to bring him a coat when she accompanied her husband who would bring his sacrifice of days. She goes with her husband Elkanah B'yamim Yamima in the second chapter, but not to bring sacrifices. Elkanah goes to bring the sacrifices. She goes for a different purpose, to bring her son a coat. Those familiar with the book of Samuel remember that the coat is the basic symbol of leadership in the book of Samuel. Saul's coat represents Saul's kingship. Saul's torn coat in the 15th chapter of the first book represents the fact that the kingship has been torn away from Saul. David later in this book will cut off the corner of Saul's coat, representing the fact that he understands that Saul has lost the kingship. If the coat represents leadership, what is Chada doing when she goes up periodically to Shiloh? She is reinforcing the fact that her son Samuel, Shmuel, is trained for leadership. Even as her husband is bringing the sacrifice, participating in Shiloh, what is Chada training Samuel for? She's training him to destroy Shiloh. Because what is Chada's prayer? That God will destroy the wicked. God will destroy the proud and the haughty and the arrogant. But who are the proud and the haughty and the arrogant in the beginning of the book of Samuel? Chada said about herself to Eli, do not consider me a bat Belial, a wicked woman. But who, who are the b'nei Belial, who are the wicked men in the book of Samuel? Immediately after Chada's prayer, the book of Samuel tells us, two verses later, Samuel was serving God before Eli the priest, but Eli's sons were wicked. They knew not the Lord. In what respect? And the book of Samuel describes their sin. They would steal from the people. They would steal the sacrifices. They would take what was not theirs. They would take it at the inappropriate time. They would molest the women. They would use their office to further their own, their own personal gain. So much so 
that at one point the book of Samuel says that God hated the sons of Eli. God hated them. God intends to destroy them. At the end of the second chapter, God sends a prophet to Eli to tell Eli, I had chosen you to be my priest forever. And now says the prophet, God forbid. Those that honor me, I will honor. Those that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. So the prayer of Chana, to raise up God's anointed one, to raise up the meek, to raise up those that are disenfranchised by the society. And Chana sees herself in that way, and she is that way. She has nobody to turn to. Surrounded by well-intentioned, but unperceptive people. But the other part of Chana's prayer is that God should destroy the proud and the haughty. What is Chana praying for if not the destruction of Shiloh? She and her husband, of course, are at cross-purposes. And even as he participates in Shiloh through the sacrificial order, she's preparing her son to be the one who will replace Shiloh. That's the story of the book of Samuel. It's interesting that if we look at Chana's prayer in chapter 1, she said a strange thing. She said, God, if you will give me children, Zera Anashim, then I will dedicate my first child. I will dedicate him to the Lord. The razor shall not cut his hair. We have pointed out already that the razor not cutting his hair is an allusion to what the Torah describes in the book of Numbers in the 6th chapter, the vow of the Nazarite. The Nazarite is one who takes upon himself or herself a vow not to cut his or her hair, not to come into contact with the dead, not to drink wine. Fundamentally, the Nazarite is a person who places himself or herself outside the establishment outside the, the community. And even more than in the legalistic portion of the Torah, if you look at the personality of the Nazarite, and the most extreme example would be Samson. Samson was a person, Nazarite from birth, akin to Samuel in some way, who was completely outside the Jewish community. In the story of Samson in no way does Samson reside within the Jewish people. His entire life, his family, and all of his functions are within the context of the Philistine community. He brings indirect redemption to the, to the Israelites, but he does not function amongst the Israelites. He's the one who was totally other, totally outside. And it would seem that Chada's prayer, namely, that I will have a child I will dedicate the child to God. And the child will be, if not a Nazarite, a quasi-Nazarite, is an indication that Chada sees that the establishment of Israel, as represented in the book of Samuel by Shiloh, which is the central place of worship, which is the temple, she sees it as hopelessly corrupt, and she sees the need to go in a different direction. The redemption will not come from within, says Chana. 
the redemption must come from the outside. And who represents the outsider more than the Nazarite? But in this case, the vow of the Nazarite is not taken by Samuel himself, but is taken by Samuel's mother. And it's interesting that Samuel himself, in many ways, reflects the nurturing, the caring, and the teaching of his mother. In the 15th chapter of the book of Samuel, in one of the pivotal stories of the kingship, King Saul has been instructed by Samuel, by God, to wage war against Amalek, the traditional enemy of God and of the Jewish people. And Saul sets out, in chapter 15, to fulfill God's terrible command, which is to destroy all of Amalek, men, women, children, and all of their possessions as well. In that chapter, in chapter 15, the first book, we are told that Saul and the people, although they kill, for the most part, most of Amalek, spare the king, King Agag, but also spare, we are told, the best of the animals. The weak ones they killed, but the best ones they did not kill. In chapter 15, God tells Samuel, Saul has disobeyed me. I have rejected him as king. At which point Samuel goes out to confront Saul. Saul rushes out to greet Samuel and welcomes him. Blessed are you unto the Lord. I have fulfilled the word of God. And Samuel says, If so, what is the noise of the, of the, of the flock that I hear? If in fact you have fulfilled the word of God. Oh, says the Saul, the people took those animals. The people did it. To which Samuel responds, But you are the king of Israel. You have to take responsibility for that. You can't say the people did it. Then Saul has a second answer. The people did it to sacrifice, to sacrifice to God. So it wasn't to take it for ourselves. It's not clear in the text whether this excuse is true or not. That's a separate issue. But his excuse is that the people took the animals to sacrifice. And when Samuel hears this, he responds vigorously to Saul's explanation. Samuel says to Saul in the 22nd verse of the 15th chapter, To obey is better than sacrifice. To listen is better than the fat of rams. Shmuel is correcting Saul in two different ways. Saul, he says, you don't understand your job as king. As king, you are ultimately responsible for what the people do. So your excuse the people did it is no excuse at all. On the contrary, it's a self-condemnation. But not only do you misunderstand your role in terms of kingship, in terms of the people, you misunderstand your role in terms of God as well. You don't understand what God demands of you. God cares not about sacrifice per se. Sacrifice is appropriate if you understand your basic obligation. Basic obligation is obedience. Shemoah mizevach tov. 
Saul is hung up on the rituals. He doesn't understand what lies behind the rituals. And it's interesting that in that very chapter, after Samuel has reprimanded Saul, Saul turns to Samuel and says, in verse 25, Forgive me, he says, Meshuvi me, Therefore I pray, pardon my sin, turn again with me, and I will bow down to the Lord. What are Saul's concerns in chapter 15? Sacrifice and bowing down. The same concerns that the book of Samuel tells us about Elkanah, the pious husband of Chada. He would go periodically to Shiloh. What for? Lishtachavot v'lizbalach to bow down and to sacrifice. He understands very well the forms of service. But where does he go? To Shiloh. The place about to be destroyed. The place that his wife wants destroyed. And what is Chadith's mode of service? Not sacrifice and not bowing down. It's prayer. Prayer. And who is the person who best represents prayer in the book of Samuel? If not Samuel himself. Samuel leads the people through prayer. Samuel is the prophet who brings back the word of God to the people. But he's also the person who leads the people in prayer. Hidei Shemoah Mizevach Tov, says Samuel, obedience is more important than sacrifice. Sacrifice can't substitute for true religion. It can reinforce it, but it can't substitute for it. Saul has failed on both accounts. Saul, the well-meaning king of Israel, the well-intentioned king of Israel, misunderstands his role vis-a-vis the people, misunderstands his role vis-a-vis God. Now let's return to our first question. Why is the story of Chana chosen as the Haftarah of Rosh Hashanah? The answer to this question lies in an understanding of the fundamental nature of the Shofar of Rosh Hashanah. The Shofar of Rosh Hashanah represents two very different things. On one hand, as we have discussed earlier, it is the wordless prayer. But the shofar on Rosh Hashanah has a second and perhaps more significant aspect. The shofar of Rosh Hashanah is the regal instrument which accompanies the enthronement of God. The fundamental theme of Rosh Hashanah is the kingship of God. What the Talmud calls Malchuyot, the basic prayer of Rosh Hashanah is God's kingship. And the two themes are connected through the Rosh Hashanah liturgy. Because what does it mean on Rosh Hashanah to say that God is king? Kingship on Rosh Hashanah implies judgment. God the king is also God the judge. It is at that point that the shofar which represents the kingship of God and by extension the judgment of God becomes transformed into the instrument which carries our prayers to God. We find ourselves suddenly the subject of God's judgment. So the theme of judgment, the enthronement of God, is bound up with the sense of shofar as an instrument of prayer. The story of Chana, the prayers of Chana, are really two different prayers. 
There is the prayer of Chana in the first chapter. The prayer of the one who is completely alone. The prayer of the one who nobody understands. And the deep wordless prayer of Chana is very much connected to the sense of the shofar of Rosh Hashanah as the instrument of our deepest prayers. Prayers which no words can capture. But the story of Chana has another kind of prayer as well. There is the prayer of gratitude of chapter 2. After Chana has given birth, where Chana praises God. But really that prayer of gratitude, that prayer of praise, that prayer that describes what God will do, how God will raise up the meek and the lowly, how God will bring down the haughty and the proud, the arrogant, the corrupt. That prayer of gratitude describing what God will do contains within it a petition as well. After all, it may be true that God will do what Hannah describes. It is equally true that God has not yet done these things. And Hannah understands that the human responsibility is to act as the agents who will impose God's will upon this world. And that's the prayer of Hannah. Her concluding line is, God should strengthen God's king. God should raise up God's anointed one. Yes, says Hannah, it's true that God is king. But human kingship, human responsibility, is to act as the instruments which enable God and God's justice to reign in this world. So the connection to Rosh Hashanah is twofold. Hannah represents the individual alone who turns to God in prayer. But Hannah also represents the visionary who understands human responsibility. And human responsibility is to impose God's kingship on the world. And that's the prayer of Hannah. And that's the day of Rosh Hashanah.